what I'm going to be discussing here in the, uh, is the concept of field diplomacy, which is just I've picked it up for further discussion on one of the books I wrote in 2006, looking at NGOs' role in field diplomacy or their work in peace building, conflict emergencies, and all that. Or if you want, it could also just be a, a short description in a chapter of um, Peace Weavers that we published last year. There's a display on the registration table. Starting off on East Africa, just to give you an idea, I'll be looking at those three countries, but taking on much more on the uh, Kenya, Uganda, and Sudan. Sudan is the largest country now. And looking at the work that the NGOs have been doing uh, in the last 20 years and the frustration of a lot of work being done on the grassroots but with very little link in the middle and the top level, as some of, a lot of our discussion this morning also adhered to that and the strategic peace building by Scott, and, and to see how sustainable can those peace processes be, but then how do we create a dialogue between the grassroots and, and, and the top level? As you know, the NGO in the last maybe, say, 15 years have been engaged to some extent in the work of peace building, and especially after the Cold War, where there was much more of a push for the NGOs to do not just relief work, but move on a little bit into development and something that is sustainable. And then further, they've been pushed now to also get engaged uh, in the peace building work and join the civil society in that process. And there have been uh, two schools uh, around this particular issue. The minimalists who say, you know, NGOs should just keep to what they're supposed to do, development, relief, and that's it. They shouldn't be engaged in peace building. And the maximalists who say, no, they should also be engaged in processes that will sustain uh, the peace processes that are in place. Uh, in large humanitarian uh, situations, Big agencies like UN have ended up being a kind of a surrogate state or a state within a state, running those refugee camps uh, within uh, certain parameters of what they define as uh, humanitarian standards. And this has led to a lot of friction with the, with the local government or the hosting government. We like to see also there have been processes where the governments that have not increased the democratic space have been marginalized, and NGOs have had then to receive a lot of aid, financial aid, that would normally have gone directly through the government. So the NGOs, in that sense, have uh, become very important. And so it is important when you're, when you're trying to link within the field diplomacy, which I'll explain later on what I mean by that, um, the links, whether economic, cultural, political, and religious, and, and see how these can at the same time contribute to, to the peace process. In most cases, we limit ourselves to the political processes of peace building and <coughs> ignore uh, the other components that are equally relevant. And today, this morning, we did listen to the economic aspects of peace building as well, but we are not dialoguing so much between these four components. Um, Generally, the NGO peace building has particular indicators that they, or kind of a framework they work within, and it's so much in the lines of liberal peace, the increase of democratic space, establishment of just institutions of governance, equitable distribution, and peaceful coexistence, 
But in most cases, uh, it's actually number one and two, democracy and um, uh, participation to to a large extent. Um, As we would agree, all these issues are very, very complex, and it's... The complexities, I'll agree here with uh, Ledrak, who says that we, we shouldn't be overwhelmed by the complexities of the, of the conflict and the sustained nature of these conflicts. But it is to find a certain humor and creativity of uh, engaging in processes that will contribute, even if it is only to a minimal process, to a whole uh, process of change. <coughs> and as you can see here, I don't know the, yeah, you can see that. The role of the diaspora, for example, who normally inject in a lot of money and influence the whole peace process, or uh, the whole trafficking of drugs and arms in any kind of uh, peace process, we need to take all this into account. The ideologies that then get invented into these processes, and for a number of African countries, the ideology tends to be formed around identity. And most of that is ethnic identity and the process of nation building. Uh, So let's come to field diplomacy as a concept, which some of our colleagues in in, in Belgium came up with this process, and we did try to apply it in the field, uh, especially in the humanitarian setting. Uh, It first of all calls for kind of a multidimensional approach. Wherever you are, you can contribute something to that process trying to link uh, the processes within the grassroots into uh, the decision makers level and I'll give a couple of examples that will just give you an idea of how this has worked so far. It does um, encourage a lot of work on the grassroots because that is what informs the linkages that we then uh, take up to the top level. So even though you refer to it as a field diplomacy, meaning on the track three of the grassroots level, it is a diplomacy among many other diplomacies in the sense that it engages other processes of dialogue as well. The forerunners, uh, Luke Reckler at the Louvain University, but also we've had other peace builders within the East African region that we've tried to link up in this process to see whether it is really workable um, in a sense. To borrow again from uh, Ledrock's Triangle, is that there's a lot of work that goes on on the grassroots. Just talking to a colleague from South Africa who told me that prior to the TRC in South Africa and the whole new political process, there's a lot of work that was going on on the grassroots in trying to bridge the divided societies among the black Africans and, and, and the white South Africans and, and other class divisions that had emerged. But this work was thrown out after independence or after the new government came into place and after the TRC, in a sense, reconciled the nation. And a lot of work that had been done in a very sophisticated network within the country had been ignored. And I think even in this morning session, we did agree that there's very little uh, coordination between the grassroots, the middle level, uh, and the decision makers level. And a lot of work seemed to be between track one and track three and track two here but very little link into the track one level. And so the field diplomacy says we can actually try to create dialogue processes to to make these links, whether it's just at the beginning of uh, uh, the emergence of conflict itself or at the very peak of the escalation, 
or in the post-conflict reconstruction. These are actually processes that we can engage in. Since I'm talking on, South, on East Africa, it'll be good to just see where we are. Uh, a number of African nations are actually in transition. If you're looking at democracy as a model that could work, and it's not working in quite a number of countries. We've moved on from populist, nationalist presidents in the 60s who have been pushed into holding elections and hence putting up uh, democratic governments. Or like in the case of Zimbabwe, a liberationalist who sees himself as you know, the person who is supposed to be leading the country and how ungrateful can you be of not acknowledging me as the person who liberated you and brought independence to this mm -hmm. country. And it's very hard to get that dialogue out of uh, uh, these presidents. We've had military states like in Nigeria that have eventually transformed themselves into some pseudo-democracies, and others are just struggling, stagnant democracies. Now, quite a number of these challenges that we are facing right now uh, continue to demonstrate that there has to be a cross-sectoral dialogue processes that will help uh, these governments to have a kind of a more sustainable peace process. And it's, it's a process that's not just linked to ending violence, because we've only about 16 to 17 countries out of 53 in Africa that are either involved in some form of conflict or the other, or emerging out of conflict. In fact, the countries that are now in conflict within Africa are very few but quite a number in the post-conflict um, situation. And those are protracted post-conflict situations, which could again erupt at, at, at any time. Um, in Sudan, just to give you an idea, 22 years of war, we had in 2005 a comprehensive peace agreement. They call it comprehensive because then it had, it's meant to be in several stages of incorporation. And in 2011, we they're supposed to decide whether they'll, they'll separate with the south, whether the north will separate with the, with the north. And just to show you here, uh, besides the Darfur war is still a big headache, and that will take a very long time, resettlement of the refugees. And the reason why the 2011 could be bloody is that if you look at this map of Sudan, what you're seeing there is 5A, 5B, 4B, those are, uh, that's all the south southern part of Sudan. And that's, these blocks are where we have large resources of oil. There's literally nothing in the north. The north is uh, mostly, mos mostly Muslim, and that's where the capital is. And then you, you have the south, which has enormous resources of oil. But the government has skewed it in such a way that all this oil that is coming from the south has to be refined in the north. So all the refineries are in the north. So it's obvious that the north is going to say we want to secede from the north. I mean, the south will say we want to secede from the north because we have all the riches. And the north will say there's no way that you're going to do that. And the north has a bigger uh, military power. They even have two big, large factories that produce larger munitions just to sustain the war. In northern Uganda, uh, that conflict has been there again for 21 years, mostly involving child soldiers and claiming the kind of a secession again from the north because of the marginalization that they've experienced for many years. So it's a process again that will take so many years to 
really get over. And as you know, the dialogue between the role of ICC and the local peace building processes is a whole dialogue that we need to be engaging in. And the previous session that I was in, this was also discussed a bit at length on the transitional justice components of it and how we need to create a new narrative that not only that's not only based on legal and political processes, but also takes into account uh, alternatives to these processes, transcending what we consider to be the norm. And sometimes people just want to transcend those processes. They want to put in a creative traditional process, for example, uh, that may overlook the structure of justice, but may much more emphasize the coexistence and a kind of a more sustainable peace process. And there are pros and cons to this, and to what extent this can be sustainable, and what lesson are we passing on to, uh, to the whole culture of impunity. But then we need to engage in such dialogues as well. If we look at Kenya, also within the East Africa, the post-election crisis did demonstrate to us that you can't have a state, but if you don't engage in a process of nation building, a nation of 42 ethnic groups, which is not even large compared to countries like Congo, which have 372 ethnic groups, and how do all these communities feel that they are part and parcel of, uh, of one state or one country that they consider to be their own. And so for, for Kenya, what the, the post-elections have demonstrated is that quite a number of issues that were never addressed during the, uh, uh, the colonial period of the land reform issues and people had been displaced during that time and the post-colonial with a governance system that wasn't accountable to the people and uh, regional marginalization which was very, very systematic whereas the constitution at independence had said that you know the national resources will be distributed equitably throughout the region they did change that section of the constitution to read that only regions that are have great economic potential will be considered for distribution of resources which is eventually then means the cronies of the president and the friends most NGO peace building at this stage, and I used to be engaged in this myself, uh, mostly in Sudan, northern Uganda, and also in, in Kenya. There are certain ideal, ideals that we're all working with. Sometimes at the end of the workshop, you ask yourself, but what have I been doing here for two weeks? Um, you know, this, the whole workshop culture of pay us the pi diem, then we will join you. If you're paying less, we'll go to the UN that pays better and uh, have better food for their the kind of workshops that they have. And in a sense, really damaging even the local processes. If, if a local chief, I remember being in southern Sudan, mm-hmm. and this, we were meeting the elders, talk to them about this whole peace process and what we need to do with the schools. And he says, my, my brother, if I don't have peace in my stomach, I cannot mm-hmm. have peace in my mind. Mm-hmm. If I call for any meeting with the local uh, people here, they always ask me, "Will you provide lunch? Will you provide us with tea?" That's what the NGOs are doing. Mm-hmm. And these meetings that would normally have been called for within the communities had already um, been undermined by the kind of peace processes that we are engaged in. And these have kind of pushed me to really raise questions on even the methodologies that we are using uh, within that particular process. And yet, I think it did engage into a lot of. Uh, grassroots dialogue and peace processes that eventually informed the 
second level of the track two peace building. At the grassroots level, uh, within the uh, uh, the field diplomacy, we emphasize much more on the accompaniment. A certain presence with the people makes a big difference. Empowerment in a sense that this conflict sometimes and dialogue processes are in a language that many local people don't seem to uh, to understand. And we need to engage them in, in those processes and those uh, issues of dialogue that are very, very important. In the previous session that I was in the transitional justice, again, just to pick up an example, is how when the ICC was introduced, uh, the whole discourse changed. The dialogue was uh, it's as though everyone knew what ICC was and the details of, of what ICC is supposed to be doing. And we see this as the role of the diaspora, the intellectuals that were brought in to engage in this process. Advocacy and um, engagement of civil society as part of this process in the middle level, and then at the decision makers level to just see to what extent can we influence the structures by informing the policies that are responsible for the situation on the ground. And I think uh, influencing the policies at the decision makers level uh, is one good value that even the academicians can contribute to. Um, and it's always amazing how even engaging with the decision makers, sometimes the level of ignorance on just the implications of some of the decisions that are made are, and they don't really realize what's the impact on the ground. But I think if we begin to dialogue with them into that process, it could uh, lead to some changes. Just to give you again briefly some examples as I wrap up on some of the work that has been done on the grassroots peace building, the, the actually religious leaders large network in northern Uganda that has been engaged with uh, doing grassroots peace building, but have also been invited in a number of peace processes or peace talks between the Uganda government and Lord's Resistance Army. Uh, the Catholic Relief Services in uh, Catholic Peace Building Network that Notre Dame had been, has been involved in did a lot of grassroots work in trying to look at what are some of the best peace building practices and what can we learn and took three cases of uh, the Great Lakes in Burundi, Mindanao um, in, in uh, the Philippines and Colombia and, and try to see how all this work that is being done what, what can we learn from this process and for me what I can say that I learned from that process is that the work that is being done on the grassroots needs to be articulated very well in a language that can then bridge us into the middle level and, and the top level with the decision makers. And I think that's really crucial. And the good thing is that even the academicians were involved in this process so that they learn from the grassroots and then articulate that in a different language that helps to kind of work as a bridge of all the good work that is being done on the ground and eventually come up with positive policies that can inform the process. I think that, to me, was a big contribution that ought to continue as, as a process. Another one, uh, I was engaged in this one directly when I used to work with Jesuit uh, Refugee Service. And Jesuit Refugee Service works in about 60 countries uh, in the world. And the model that we adopted was I was working with refugees from Rwanda, Burundi, just after the genocide. And we 
we couldn't speak out on some of the abuses that were going on in the refugee camps, either by the government or by the network, criminal networks within the, uh, the refugee camps. But we were able to, to document and report some of the cases to Human Rights Watch, uh, to Amnesty International, and we'll invite them to come and carry out their own investigation, then publicize and you know, name and shame uh, the government, or then engage in the whole process of uh, trying to change those kind of situations. And one simple success also that we had was um, the, but the UN was cutting down a lot on its budget, as you know, in sometimes in the mid-90s. And that meant that uh, the World Food Program also had to cut down its own budget. And the consequence of that was that the food distribution in the camps were beginning to affect the health, especially of the children, and we are having high mortality rates. And we had to confront the uh, World Food Program and say, you know, this situation needs to be addressed, and we don't even ha have enough health supplies within the dispensaries. And they say, well, we have our budget has been cut down, and there's no way that, you know, we just have to live within the limits. I say, who are your main sponsors? The European Union. So we linked up with our colleagues in Brussels to lobby the European Union Parliament and see whether that situation could be changed. And it meant, you know, back and forth uh, diplomacies between uh, our colleagues in Brussels. And eventually that was revised and the situation was restored. And the other project that we are now working on following this model of field diplomacy is trying to monitor the mining contracts in, in Congo mm. and also the oil distribution process in Chad. And those mining contracts... Um, first is that with a group in Kinshasa to lobby the government to revise those contracts and thank God now 42 contracts were stopped and uh, revised last year uh, but at the same time with another team in, in Brussels trying to lobby the, the, the parliament so that they are, there are fair contracts and better working conditions especially in eastern Congo where the war has been going on for a long time and some of these mining companies have directly or indirectly been involved in that process so, yes, yeah. thank you. Uh, uh, the other one is some of the NGOs in Sudan have, have been reporting uh, human rights abuses and trying to link this up with the uh, AU, which is the African Union office in, uh, in uh, Addis. Or the other on a more local level within uh, in Kenya is where the religious leaders uh, started a whole new political process and say that we are not going to go with the government pushing us to have a new constitution only discussed within the, within the parliament. We want the people to be involved in a constitution-making process. And the religious leaders started a parallel process that was so much threatening to the government that the government had to dissolve its own uh, constitutional reform process and join with the religious leaders. So that was um, one good way of just pushing the government towards that. And so just to end, um, as I've said here, that we need really a credible presence in the grassroots in order to, uh, to push for change. But to a greater extent also we need to be a bit intrusive uh, at the decision makers level and see how we can you know, force ourselves into the dialogue and into the process. And now with the credit crunch, what impact will this have on, on aid that's been given to all these countries? What impact will it have on post-conflict reconstruction and the UN troops and all that? 
And so the bridging component of this, I think, is crucial and it's, it's, it's really important for us that we are bridges of these processes and, and that's why we are engaging ourselves uh, into this. What we are trying to establish is a kind of a social justice that takes into account the various levels of interaction uh, that are important for all of us. Just a quick critique of uh, that process um, is that also we tend to rely a bit too much on the uh, liberal peace um, approach and emphasize on democratization, marketization, and, and liberal e economies. But I think we need to engage into an alternative policy and not so much rely on the uh, liberal peace approach. Thank you very much.